This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. Imagine this. You are a medical anthropologist originally from a small town in Iowa living through a pandemic, and suddenly your small town becomes a COVID-19 hotspot. You get to work and try to figure out what happened and why. That is Emily Mendenhall's story. She's a professor of global health in the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. She grew up in Okaboji and still spends at least part of every summer there. She conducted interviews with more than 100 individuals in the Okaboji area during the summer and fall of 2020. She's written about what she learned in the book Unmasked, COVID, Community, and the case of Okaboji. She is on the line with me now. Hello, Emily. Hello. Good morning. Well, thank you so much for being here. And I want to go back to the beginning of the pandemic. So you're in Washington, D.C. at Georgetown University, and you're working with people who are some of the world's leading experts on pandemics. Tell me a little bit about what what life was like for you at, at Georgetown during that time. Oh, it was exciting and scary and also just really busy. Um, I, As I write in the book, I'm really good friends with Rebecca Katz, who was at the center of the dialogue and response um, for in global health security. Um, so we were having weekly meetings about her work and it was kind of a break for her, but I was also just trying to clue in to the policy and you know where things were headed. Um, so it was a really exciting time. And you're in Washington, D.C., sort of at the the nexus of all of the thinking that's going on about the pandemic as we're trying to navigate. Uh, And you're looking homeward toward Okaboji. What were your thoughts looking at Okaboji from afar in March and April of that year? Well, you know, it was, of course, of course, current um, concern for my parents at first. Are they safe? Um, you know, what are they doing? Is is my dad going out and about or is he staying home? You know, but everyone in Okaboji was really um, careful um, in March and April. People were really careful. Um, and the mantra, um, you know, re- about really caring for each other and staying home and we're all in this together was at the center of the conversation. And you also had family at the center of the conversation, because your your brother-in-law is a doctor in the area, right? Yeah, my brother-in-law is a family physician, and he was also actually leading the um, local public health department and, and programs at the time. So he was really at the center of it. Yeah, and really the face of the pandemic response in those early weeks and months in the Okaboji area. So were you even then in those early months as things were, you know, shutting down across the country, but also very much shut down and locked down in Washington, D.C.? Were you thinking about getting back to Iowa? Well, we usually go in the summer, but of course, in March, we didn't know what we could do, if it would be safe to travel um, or if we'd be able to see any family at all. Um, and when it's in, it wasn't until about the end of May when we realized that perhaps we could drive safely and make few stops, pack a bunch of food. Um, My kids had to pee on the side of the road (laughs) because, you know, at that time, we really knew so much less um, about our risks. 
and how the pandemic would go. So we were really careful and we drove out and quarantined in my parents' basement. Um, and after having a couple of days, you know, of quarantine, we saw my sister and her family, but we actually quarantined for my parents the whole summer. Mm. Now, I think most Iowans know a little bit about the Iowa Great Lakes region. Uh, we've all heard of Okaboji, but for people who maybe aren't really familiar with the area, let's talk a little bit about it. Dickinson County, that's where Okaboji is. It's in northwestern Iowa. And the whole county has a permanent population of around 17,000. So this really is a rural county, except during the summers, right? Yeah, I think one of the wonderful things about the Iowa Great Lakes is it's really a small town all year. And in the summer, there are people who just flood in and it's you know, it's known as the party capital of Iowa. People come in and they lose their worries and they just relax. And there's so many beautiful small resorts which have um, to stay in. You know, my my family actually um, had a small family resort, as many did for many years. Tourism is the, at the center of the economy. Um, people used to say, you know, um, you can't farm a lake. So for a long time, people didn't um, settle in the Iowa Great Lakes. But over time, tourism just took hold and was sent the center of, of growth in the area. So, um, yeah, it's, a, it's just a really beautiful, beautiful and quiet place, although it's gotten a lot busier over the last 30 years. Right, right. Well, so the population, at least the temporary population, it swells to, what, about 100,000 in the summer months usually, right? Yeah, even a bit more. Um, I was looking at some of the tourism or the um, residency data. It's up to 120,000 around in the summer in the area, which is is quite a bit. And even at some really busy weekends, there have been estimates of half a million people in the area, which is an extraordinary number of people. Right, right. So what else? You said it really is a small town throughout the year. What else do you think we should know about Okaboji and, and the surrounding communities as well? Well, it's a very strong, um, socially integrated town. I mean, people support each other. There's a lot of informal um, safety nets. There's a really strong Puritan and Protestant religious community. Um, it's um, although a lot of small towns in Iowa have um, become more diverse and welcomed immigrants in, there's very um, small population um, of um, immigrants in the U- in um, Dickinson County. It's largely white and conservative and, and, um, and Christian, which is, and, and I think an interesting study. That's one of the reasons why I thought it was so interesting. So we remember, at least all of us who were here during the time, I think we remember how COVID started spreading through the state of Iowa. It appeared, in fact, in Iowa City and Johnson County was the first place where we had COVID cases. And there were cases in some of the more urban areas for a while. And then we saw these hotspots develop at places where there were meatpacking plants or or, or large factories in various parts of the state. And um, it saw some some really sad and frightening things happen. And of course, a, a lot of policy discussions surrounding how to handle that. Now, what was happening in Dickinson County early on in the pandemic? You said people were really careful. People were really safe. Yeah, people were really um, following the mantra, we are all in this together, and we're really concerned about one another. But by early May, there had only been six cases. And there had been just across the border in Worthington in Minnesota, and of course in Sioux Falls, which we heard about all of the outbreaks. And there had been a number of cases and and big outbreaks across uh, that reflected um, packing plans across the country. But I think people kind of felt safe in Iowa um, or in Okaboji in the area. Um, 
there were there aren't big processing plants. Um, there were so few cases, and people thought maybe they they had escaped the the pandemic. And I think that's why people started opening up, thinking this isn't going to come here. Well, and I can remember that a lot of people in rural areas really felt like uh, the shutdowns were an overreaction to what was going on because it just wasn't present in their communities. And of course, there were so many unknowns during that time. But, you know, in hindsight, maybe those shutdowns were an overreaction in rural Iowa. In Dickinson County, though, things suddenly changed late May. Tell me what happened. Yeah, well, the early May we have we kind of opened the tourist season with this weekend called Walleye Weekend, and they were really pretty careful. They actually closed down and changed the competition to extend throughout the summer, and they really called off the the weekend um, celebration and competition. But actually, a lot of people still came because the hotels were open. Um, and by Memorial Day, all bets were off. People were open. Um, you know. In a tourist economy, when mo- a lot of families make all of their money in the summer months, people couldn't imagine not opening up and not having an Okaboji summer because it's so critical to the local economy. So in my in my perception and actually throughout all of my interviews and the observation of the community is that the community made a pivot. And I think they made a, many people made a calculated risk that the risk of losing the um, finance financial st- stability of the summer was outweighed the risk of the pandemic. And we did see COVID numbers spike, and we'll never know how many COVID cases there really were in Dickinson County during that time because testing was still pretty hard to come by, and we'll talk more about that in a little while. We are going to take a short break, and then we will talk more about what you found in these extensive interviews that you did with people in the Okaboji area about their response to the pandemic, their feelings, their experiences. I'm talking with Emily Menden. Hall. She is a medical anthropologist. She grew up in Okaboji, but now is a professor at Georgetown University. And she did an in-depth study about COVID in her hometown. She's published the book Unmasked COVID Community and the Case of Okaboji. This is Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. I'm talking with Emily Mendenhall. She is a professor of global health in the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University. She is a medical anthropologist, and she grew up in Okaboji, Iowa. She still spends at least part of every summer there with family. And in the summer of 2020, she decided not just to return to Okaboji for the summer because it's a beautiful place to be, but she also found herself diagnosed diving deep into research of a COVID-19 outbreak in the Okaboji area in the summer of 2020. She's written about what she learned in Unmasked COVID Community and the Case of Okaboji. And 
Emily, just before the break, we were talking about how things had been really calm and really safe in Dickinson County until the weather got warm and everything opened up in Okaboji. People flooded into the area and it became a COVID hotspot. Um, before we dig into to what you have found through your research, I want to talk a little bit about what a medical anthropologist is, because it's not a, a career many of us are really familiar with. But you were studying the movement of the virus, but also much more than that. Tell me a little bit about what you were looking for when you started this research. Yeah, I like to describe my approach in medical anthropology in relation to other approaches. So in medicine, there's the you know, concern with the body and the disease. In public health, it's more about individual behavior and relation to the population. In medical anthropology, we're really concerned with the other squishy factors from politics to social relationships, to beliefs, to the ways in which people think about who they are in the world, um, as well as how people interact with their environment. So that's really the approach that I came to un- try to understand, you know, why was COVID spiking in Okavoji? And here you are studying a place that you're intimately familiar with, which I can imagine is an advantage in some ways because you grew up in this culture. You fully understand the culture of Okaboji. But at the same time, you are studying a community that you're part of. Was that, did that give you pause? Oh, it was extraordinary. Um, you know, I've worked around the world. I've spent a lot of time in, in Delhi and Nairobi and Johannesburg, um, in Chicago, even um, doing doing in-depth studies of how people think about new illnesses. I've been studying the intersection of diabetes and, and poverty and trauma actually for a long time, um, specifically among among low-income communities. But coming home and seeing, especially when so many of my friends around the world um, in different places were really concerned and taking more conservative approaches to COVID, I was just struck by the very different experience um, in Okaboji. And I, at first, actually, I just got engaged because I wanted to help my brother-in-law because it felt that he had almost no tools in his backpack except public education. And it felt that 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 testing, education, contact tracing, um, but almost no authority to shut down the county or um, to really make any policy um, implementation. There were a lot of recommendations, but actually making any decisions was out of public health's control. So Okaboji is a, a rural area with this huge tourist attraction. That's part of the culture of the area. It's also uh, Dickinson County is a largely, I guess, maybe overwhelmingly conservative area too, right? Yeah. And for because of that and because of the, um, you know, I was watching the national um, and state policy and political leadership very closely. And it was very interesting. And it is interesting. We know this, that we all follow the news closely and the news you watch and follow are often, you know, what you talk about and the ideas you share. So um, the conservative talking points were um vibrant throughout the summer. Yeah. And I think that, that's a that's an understatement. Um, <laughs> but it is interesting to sort of contrast how people behaved and the decisions that they made as this virus and the response to it was politicized with 
the small town Iowa values that you grew up with, the kinds of things that we celebrate in Iowa, the story that we tell about ourselves, that we have these communities where we know our neighbors and we care about our neighbors and we take care of each other and we invest in our communities. That story seemed to suddenly be in direct opposition to how people were responding to COVID. Tell me more about what you observed. Yeah, I thought that was really fascinating. And it took me a long time to think through why and what was behind it. And about a year before, my mom actually had told me to read the book Prairie Fires, which was a deconstruction of the little house on the prairie writing Mm -hmm. of those books, of these ideas really of manifest destiny and who we are um, as settlers in the Midwest. And I found it to be fascinating and it actually rung true to this kind of um, scraping of the reality of our history and the scraping of government intervention and this idea again and again that, you know, I don't need the government. I don't want the government involved in my life. And this rejection of state intervention throughout the history of colonizing Iowa struck struck so deeply because of the consistent investment of the government in the area and, and the idea that public health could do nothing for the community. Now, that wasn't necessarily broadly um, uh, believed, but, you know, there was a very strong local minority that, um, that pushed that idea. Let's talk about how numbers started to climb, because, again, as part of your research, you were also trying to figure out how this happened, where the hotspots were and and how the numbers started jumping. What did you learn as you started to, to kind of unravel where the cases started appearing and how they spread so rapidly? A lot of cases were spread in the bars and through businesses that weren't following regulations. And, you know, we heard the the governor repeat, and even the sheriff said around town, you know, I cannot enforce a mask mandate. I cannot enforce public health measures. And, you know, we know that's silly. That's been enforced and reinvigorated all over the world, um, including Washington, D.C. You know, we just reinstated at my university a mask mandate again today because of the the new um, variant on its way, Omicron variant. So, you know, we know that that can be enforced, um, but there was a lack of political or, you know, um, uh, investment in these public health um, recommendations by the police and, and by the state. So, you know, businesses didn't feel like they had to comply. Well, and, and businesses have a lot of power in Okoboji. And you write about the Chamber of Commerce and and really this sort of feeling like businesses are going to do what they need to do to to make money. And that's the priority. Yeah, I just think it's such an interesting um, case study of America. And, you know, Okoboji is not unique. This happened throughout America. But business have businesses have so much power and really actually had more power than the state in the American response to COVID, which is fascinating and also really concerning. And I talk a little bit about Walmart as a cornerstone of COVID policy, because for a long time, it was the only place that had a mass mandate um, that was a national mass mandate. And so when you entered Walmart and some GOP actually leadership, um, local politicians said they wouldn't even go into Walmart because they had to mask. Um, And, you know, there was local politics being played out throughout the store throughout the summer. And I found it to be a fascinating place to study. And and pretty much, I mean, in Dickinson County, pretty much everybody winds up at Walmart at some time or another, right? 
Oh, absolutely. Um, even if people said, I'm not going into Walmart, they'd sneak in if they needed something they couldn't get anywhere else. <laughs> so <laughs> the perfect the perfect place to study anthropology is yeah. uh, the Walmart <laughs> in Dickinson County. Um, I, I want to talk about some of the some of the incidents that you really uh, uncovered. One of them you refer to as the bus incident. And I thought that that was a, a really fascinating moment that, that probably really, really sped the spread of COVID. Tell me what happened. It was really interesting because I arrived on June 6th and it was in the middle of an outbreak. Cases were shooting up and, you know, I didn't know what had happened. I had just gotten home. And, um, you know, about a week later, um, within a week, I had submitted an IRB and I had gotten, you know, rolled up my sleeves and started interviewing any, with all of my friends from growing up and anyone who would speak with me. And, you know, by the time you're in your early 40s, you know, a lot of people throughout the town. Um, and so I had friends on the, biz of, on the Chamber of Commerce. I had friends who had businesses in tourism, who were teachers, who were nurses. Um, and so over time, as I started uncovering these interviews, everyone, especially the moms who had kids who worked for the certain business, kept mentioning, you know, um, they got sick at work. They got sick at work. And this bus incident was, I think, actually had good intentions. This bus incident was one business owner put all the employees on a bus and drove them to Storm Lake, where there was a pork processing plant where they had a test Iowa clinic well before Okaboji, I think two months before, to get tested because they had a couple of positive cases at work. And they came back with a bus full of COVID positive workers. Right. I mean, the, that's a long bus ride and everybody was together. I'm going to mm -hmm. guess that there weren't a lot of masks on the bus just based <laughs> on having read your book. Um <laughs> And, yep. and so really, right, you took people where there were probably a few cases, packed them all together and had them spend three hours on a bus together. Yeah, but there was really no regulation. So there was also it wasn't just this business. It was I mean, and I also found out through, you know, through digging and talking and learning that um, all of the the kids who worked at this at this restaurant and, and bar and marina were canoodling with the kids who worked at other bars and marinas, you know, and so you know, it spread quickly through the young people and so many were asymptomatic. Right. And even those who did have some symptoms weren't reporting because they didn't want to miss work because we didn't have a great policy and there wasn't a great support by business owners for those who were sick to stay home. So this this uh, outbreak in Okaboji was largely among young people. But of course, we know that COVID doesn't stay in the population that it starts in. And so things got a, a lot more serious. And, and there were deaths in Okaboji during this outbreak, right? Yeah. Yeah. The first death, um, I think, was in mid-June. Um, and, you know, it increased throughout the summer. There still were under 10 by the end of the summer. Um, it really started to spike in November of 2020, a bit later. But I do think, actually, in June, with the outbreak, people were still being careful with elders. So a lot of the young people I spoke to were like, I'm staying at a couch with a friend. I'm living with friends. I'm not seeing my grandma, um, which I think changed and shifted when schools opened. Um, but the outbreak was mostly among young people, people, which is why I think deaths increased later in the year. So you interviewed a lot of people and obviously you started, you know, started really with your social circle. This is a largely conservative area, but you ended up interviewing people who were about 50-50 on the political spectrum, right? Yeah. Um, and that's that's interesting. So it wasn't necessarily representative of 
the area proportionally, but it, it did give you a broad spectrum of reactions. When you first started doing this research, did you expect it to be so wrapped up in people's personal politics? Well, you know, I've been studying how people think about health and disease for a long time. So this wasn't a surprise to me. I was even writing about some of the politics in in March of 2020. Um, but I, I was somewhat disappointed, um, for sure. But also, you know, people had really different beliefs. It wasn't just one narrative. Um, there were a lot of conservatives who were really concerned, actually, about masking. Um, and a lot of them were linked, either worked in healthcare or had someone um, in their family who worked in healthcare. But on the other side, there were really um, kind of extreme um, conservatives, um, big Trump supporters who one physician, for example, in the community rejected public health and I think caused a lot of harm in the community and probably a lot of death and contradicted public health even in clinical practice again and again and continues to do so. So I think some of that really undermined the public health, um, the, the work of public health. And Community tensions really started to rise as, as people were displaying different behaviors and observing how other people were reacting and, and feeling at risk and feeling angry. Uh, you found yourself really, and, and I think all of us did, at the center of this just incredibly fraught situation. And Emily, we're going to take another short break. And when we get back, we're going to talk about that, the community tension that you observed and that you became a part of in Okaboji as the COVID numbers climbed and you saw people react in different ways. I'm talking with Emily Mendenhall. She is the author of Unmasked COVID Community and the Case of Okaboji. She is a medical anthropologist at Georgetown University, but she's from Okaboji, Iowa. She spent the summer of 2020 in Okaboji and interviewed more than 100 residents about their experience during the COVID-19 pandemic and a uh, really their their politics and beliefs as well. We'll find out more in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio. I'm Charity Nebbe. My guest is Emily Mendenhall. She's the author of Unmasked, COVID Community and the Case of Okaboji. She is a medical anthropologist at Georgetown University, but she grew up in Okaboji, Iowa, and still spends at least part of every summer there. She was in Okaboji the summer of 2020, living through the pandemic, but also observing as the community became a COVID-19 hotspot. She dove in. She did over 100 interviews with locals to, to really understand what happened and why it happened. And uh, Emily, I want to talk about the the really the growing tension in the community. This is a tight-knit community where people care about each other and people know each other and families go back for a long time, although there's this huge influx of tourists and new people every year. Um 
you observed how people were responding to each other. You looked at it on social media, but also in the community. And there's one story that you share about a local fine dining restaurant and how they responded to having COVID positive cases on uh, in their staff and their decision to close down for a couple of weeks and how people responded. Can you tell me about that situation? Yeah, um, this was not long after I arrived, and one of the um, nicest restaurants in town, who and I actually know the owners, closed down for two weeks, um, the two weeks leading up to the July 4th weekend. And they were really honest. They said, you know, I had we had two cases. We shut down. They employ mostly families, so they knew if they had more cases on the staff that they would lose most of their staff. And so they shut down for two weeks. Um, and this was pretty common guidance um, throughout the summer or in these early days, especially that you should shut down for two weeks right. and um, and and ensure that, you know, you don't have positive cases on your staff and then reopen. And with the Fourth of July coming up, which is, you know, the largest um, often weekend. I mean, July as a month is is the busiest weekend in Okoboji or summer um, month of in Okoboji. And so they wanted to be open for that weekend. So they shut down and they wrote this really um, nice Facebook post and also column in the Dickinson County News. And they received a lot of backlash, um, a lot, a lot of shaming, not only by other businesses, but also um, patrons. That And it's so fascinating. And you you dug into really the verbiage of the message that they shared, which was really just about their decision, of course, it was a huge financial sacrifice for them during this very busy season to to shut down. Although, you know, given that they may have lost all their staff, maybe, you know, it was also partially practical. Um, but this message that the owner of the restaurant shared didn't seem to be political, didn't seem to be judgmental of others, just a, a statement of the choice that they made. And the reaction was so angry that's so interesting. What do you learn from that? Well, you know, it actually relates a lot to what a friend of mine um, said, who is now a nurse in the area. She said, you know, my mom always taught me not to t talk about politics, religion, or your weight at the breakfast table. And, you know, I always thought that was funny because, and she said, you know, when I put a mask on, I put politics on my face and it becomes part of the everyday conversation. And that's why it's so difficult in the community is because, you know, we have these, this, we're human and we have this need to um, be collective and align. And the community ties in the community in, in Okoboji, as in many small communities around the country and around the world, are strong and interconnected. So wearing a mask or shutting down um, is an extension of that in aligning with public health was really, I think, came to not only be political, but also a demonstration of rejecting the community's turn towards the economy. And I felt there was this in-depth, really profound in-grouping, are you in or out? Are you with us or not? Um, which was just so interesting to see play out. And of course, as a public health person, it was really disappointing. But looking back on it, you can understand what dynamics were at play. And you, of course, you saw this in the microcosm of Okaboji, but we saw this statewide. We saw this nationwide. Right. I mean, the, this this story plays out all over yeah. the country. And 
you also became part of this community tension because you published an article in Vox that that got a lot of attention around the country. And it's largely about all of the things that we've been talking about on this program. Uh, tell me what happened when you published that article. Well, first, I think a lot of credit needs to go to my friend David Thorson, who took really um, profound photos of what was happening. Um, really, they touched... Um, they touched a nerve for a lot of people seeing in the middle of the pandemic, a bunch of folks um, partying, you know, and, and, you know, very close together um, with Trump flags. It was political. It was anti-public health. It was at the middle of a pandemic. Um, so it, it really got people's attention. And I talked about, you know, a lot of things we've talked about today about the, the fact that masks were so political and that people didn't want to engage. They didn't some actually some people I spoke to stayed home because they didn't want to be shamed for masking or unmasking. Um, and they just didn't want to experience that that social shaming. So um, the article actually came out and I actually initially wrote it in June because I was trying to figure out, is there anything I can do to support Zach? Is there anything that I that's can your do brother to in help law, right? my brother-in-law? Yeah, my brother-in-law. Because it felt that the only thing they had to do, the only power public health had to do was through the power of education and persuasion. So I said, okay, well, I can write. I, so I tried to submit something to the Des Moines Register and the Sioux City Journal, and they didn't bite. So I kept working on it and eventually got um, linked to Vox. And it just so happened that I went to a working group of the school board um, the day before I had to send in my final edits. And I said, okay, maybe I can influence this decision because my sister was and brother-in-law were really concerned that masking wouldn't be enforced for their children. And I had even thought about maybe staying for the school year since definitely the schools would be closed on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I wrote about it um, and I inflamed some things. But, you know, in the end, they actually have had enforced a bit stricter masking policy than they might have. So... When you did all of these interviews, uh, and and I I was really impressed with the transcripts that you shared of some of these interviews, you really did, I think, an incredible job not sharing your personal beliefs and values in these conversations because you wanted to give people a safe space to really share their views. And as I mentioned earlier, you have really diverse views through all of your interviews. You are sharing a lot of really disparate viewpoints. Um, I can imagine after you publish that article, though, people are like, oh, this is what she really thinks and and really called into question what you were doing. Well, I one of the actual benefits is that I had conducted most of my interviews by the time that was published. Um, and I didn't I wasn't really I didn't really reach out to people, especially on who are more conservative for additional interviews after that. I did reach out to a few, actually, who declined. Um, I interviewed a few um, lawmakers um, who were um, on the on the left after that. And I did a bunch of follow up interviews with people who were willing. Um, but, you know, I had I had such a deep collection of interviews by then. I wasn't really concerned. But of course, when you make a public statement, it affects um how people are going to see you in the project. So. so this is such a deep look at at what happened in one community in Iowa. And I can, in spite of the fact that Okaboji is a unique and special place with a unique culture in our state, I, you know, closely followed the pandemic all over the state of Iowa. And I could pick up what happened in this community and lay it over what happened in this community and that community. And, you know, these patterns are things that, that really hold true in a lot of places and not just in Iowa. 
What do you feel we can learn from taking this anthropological look at what we've all just lived through? Yeah, and I write about in the book, it's as important to write about what didn't work as well as to write about what did. And so many scientists write about things that went well, that showed some effect. And, you know, what we can really show is that the policy or non-policy of personal responsibility failed. And although I show people, for example, um, a woman I call Bethany in the book who really exemplified this policy of personal responsibility and who was herself a nurse, um, businesses cannot function without policy and there needs to be enforcement when we are in crisis. And I actually think one of the important things and important reasons to have conversations about what happened to COVID and how we responded to this crisis is because we are in the middle of a climate crisis. And if we are going to make any change and have collective investment in responding to this crisis, and you know, the next pandemic may not be that far away, it definitely will come within the next hundred years, probably much sooner. And how do we respond? How do we, you know, can we collectively become a nation or a world where we mask when people are at risk and when there are new respiratory infections? Or can we also make collective change around climate? What can we do? How can we use our strengths to respond? And that may actually mean we need stronger policy to normalize this kind of collective response. We have more than 9,400 dead Iowans of COVID-19. And and that is such a heartbreaking number in a state with a population this small. So that was going through my mind reading your book. But also to see this tight-knit community really torn apart in so many ways with people who stopped talking to each other, who people who unfriended each other on social media. And the, the fabric of the community feels torn in some ways. And and again, I see that and feel that all over the state of Iowa. Do does this do you feel like this will begin to repair or do you feel like this damage is so deep? I've been thinking about that and people have asked me how I feel about going home after writing this book. Um and you know, I actually think people are just not going to talk about it. Because there is this culture of discretion around politics, religion, or, you know, any contested um, feature that people avoid. Um, so I wonder if people will talk to me about it. I would love to engage Okobojians. If you are on the call, please read the book and engage with me. Um, we're having an event at Lakeside Lab and, and maybe a few other events in the summer. And I'd love to talk through the book and the ideas and the experience with you. Um, but, you know, I, I think this is especially the memorialization of those who died and the dismissal of the meaning behind those deaths really, you know, gets to the heart of who we are as American and how we can do better next time. Well, uh, Emily, I hope you'll come back as you discover more and as things evolve. But thank you so much for this in-depth look. Thank you so much. The book is Unmasked, COVID, Community, and the Case of Okaboji. Emily Mendenhall is a medical anthropologist at Georgetown University, but she grew up in Okaboji, Iowa. This is Talk of Iowa from Iowa Public Radio.